Hi, everyone, and welcome to Her Story, episode four. I'm really excited for you to listen to these stories and the experiences of my good friend, Avadis Escandon. Avadis is currently a viola performance major at the Baldwin Wallace Conservatory of Music, and he has some great insight into the racial inequities that are occurring in today's classical world. So I'm very excited for you to listen to this episode. Please let us know what you think. Please like and share the episode on SoundCloud. And please go to our GoFundMe page to help keep these episodes on our platforms. If you go to GoFundMe.com and you search support the Her Story podcast, you will find our account. Thank you so much. I'm Avadis Escondon. I am a rising junior viola performance major at Baldwin Wallace University. That being said, I obviously play the viola and I'm from Hilliard, Ohio. So let's talk a little bit about why you got into music in the first place. What sparked your interest from a young age? I've always had a pretty musical family, not in the sense that a lot of professional musicians do. Like I Neither of my parents are professional musicians. Technically, my mom is because she went to music school, but she never ended up pursuing it. So that never really made its way into my like young, young life. We always had this upright piano sitting in our house that we still have actually in our apartment right now. When I was little, I remember I would always be so intrigued by it and I would always want to noodle around. That was sort of like the before I knew what music was introduction, but also it would always be like I would be in the car with my mom or my dad or both of them, and it would just be like there's always music playing. And I mean, between 2000 and 2005, which was when I lived in California, it was like that was like 2000s pop music, you know, like Maroon 5, No Doubt, plus like classic rock that my dad or that both of my parents really would listen to all the time. And so I was always really intrigued by that kind of stuff. And so that had always sort of been just a constant in my life. And so my mom, like I said before, was studied music in school and she was an opera major. So she's a singer. Wow. Um, and I've always been a singer just because of that. And also I actually just started taking voice lessons this past semester, which was really cool. And so that's always been something that's been in my life. And so really that was the first thing that I had before I even knew what a viola was at all. I was like singing and I was hearing just all this brand new, like all these new experiences, all these new sounds that I had never heard before. And it was just really amazing. And so then fast forward, I'm like five or six years old now, but I was always, I always loved the music class that we had, just the general music class we had in elementary school. I joined my little adorable elementary school choir in, I want to say, third or fourth grade. And I think I only did it for that one year. Something about it just spoke to me, like just all of the past, like the singing that I always wanted to do is singing along all the songs that I always listened to. And so it was just, 
is like a slow build to the sort of uh, musical development that I would eventually have. And so then come fifth grade, this is a story that I love telling. So the, the way that I encountered the viola, I actually always wanted to be a drummer because I've always had this like innate just fascination with rhythm. And so I always wanted to be a drummer. So come fifth grade, we got to the instrument presentations that they give us. We just all sat in a room and they played all the instruments for us. And so first we heard all the band instruments and I was like, oh my God, finally, I'm going to be able to learn how to play the drums. And so we heard all the band instruments and I was like super excited for that. And then we went over to the other room and they played all the string instruments for us. And I just like, don't even know what changed. But from that day on, I remember like sitting in the car with mom and being like, I want to play the viola. And that was sort of it. That was like the beginning of the end, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I just sort of took the normal course that any public school music student would have. In the orchestra class, and we had a, at that point when we were just beginning, it was just strings class, of course. I was sort of just learning. And I mean, honestly, I remember I was sick quite a few times that year. And so I actually missed some of the most important days. Like I missed the day where we learned how to hold a bow. I also missed the day (laughs) we learned how to actually hold the instrument up with like the shoulder rest and everything and not like have it completely fall over. Like I said, I was basically just like a normal public school music kid. When I got to middle school, especially like seventh and eighth grade, I started to get really, really interested, more interested in what I was doing with the viola and everything. And I mean, I always had the interest because something about it just called to me. And I was in the bottom orchestra in our middle school. We had a pretty strong music program. When I was there, the middle school had, I think, two or three orchestras. And I was like, not even close to sitting like principal or anything. There's really nothing special about the way that I was playing. But what sort of set me apart and what sort of set my experience apart was that I was so interested and so fascinated. Like every day that I would go to orchestra class, I would just get more and more interested. And it got to a certain point where I was like, wow, I'm not sitting like where I want to be. I want to be in a higher place. I want to be better. I want to do these things better. And then at a certain point, just randomly one, I was talking to my orchestra teacher, Mrs. Given. And one day I was just like, Mrs. Given, I want to be an orchestra teacher when I grow up. And she was like, wow, that was sort of the beginning of like the real development of where I found my direction. Yeah. Come the end of seventh grade, going into eighth grade, we had our auditions for the next year for our orchestra placement. I was really gunning to be in the top orchestra in eighth grade because I was really driven and I wanted to do something more than what I was doing already. I auditioned and I didn't actually make it, but I talked to my teacher about it because I was really serious about this. And she suggested that I take private lessons. And if I did that, then I could be moved up to the top orchestra instead. So I I did start taking private lessons. If the story so far has told you anything, it's that it's life overall. It's been a super roundabout adventure. Yeah. And I actually had the same teacher from eighth grade all the way until I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. She was studying at Ohio State. She actually studied when she was in high school. Her private teacher was who I studied with at Baldwin Wallace. 
Professor Veskamets, for those of you who don't know who that is, which I thought, like, in retrospect, is, like, absolutely whack. That's so funny. What kind of coincidence, you know? Avedis' teacher plays viola in the Cleveland Orchestra, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> I obviously didn't know that until, like, way later, but... Yeah. So I started taking lessons with her. Her name is Miss McGrean, and she ended up, she's now a teacher, a public school teacher here in Columbus. So I started taking lessons, and, you know, once again, normal music school like public school music student that just happens to take lessons like as far as I knew there wasn't anything much special I was just sort of doing it Mm -hmm. and I was just interested because I really loved it and that's sort of what I always knew set me apart and so then again a year later we had our auditions for the uh, high school orchestras and so there's the two orchestras at the high school at the time now there's like three or four I got the audition material And once again, I was super serious about this stuff. This was like the only thing that really like gave me just a lifetime's worth of direction. Yeah. I really tried super hard. And I was one of the like, I think four freshmen that got into the top orchestra of our high school. And literally I saw that list, went out into the hallway and I started screaming because I was so happy. Aww, Um, that's awesome. Basically, I made my way through high school with that because I knew that that's what I wanted to do. The day that I told my middle school orchestra teacher that I wanted to be an orchestra teacher, I knew that that's just something with the viola. The viola was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I mean, no high schooler knows exactly what they want to do or how they want, how to like make their aspirations come true, like in a functional way. Yeah. Because there's your kids, kids don't really know a whole lot about career fields and all the real world stuff but what I did know all I really knew was like music teachers and I always knew that I liked teaching so I just sort of started taking a little bit more seriously the the more that I did it the more that I sort of really fell in love with it um sophomore year I did my I auditioned for my my district's region orchestra I didn't think I was good enough because I was just sort of once again that normal kid that just sort of took lessons and the only thing that set me apart was that I liked it. Yeah. Didn't think there was anything really special about the way that I played. But after a year of being in the high school orchestra, my director was really insistent upon me trying out for the region orchestra. And I was like, well, there's no way. I don't think I'm really good enough. And then I thought it over after a couple of weeks. A week and a half before the audition was due, I decided I was going to just go for it. Uh, man, like I'm totally, these are some like really defining moments that I honestly forgot about. This is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you forget about those things in where you are in your life now. But when you think back on those, there were pretty significant moments that definitely changed totally, things for you. Totally formative moments. Yeah. And so I decided, you know what, whatever, I'm going to go for it. The worst that happens is that I don't get accepted to the region orchestra. So I practiced my butt off. I practiced like these three short excerpts. I think I remember I counted the hours because I was so serious about it. I think I practiced just those excerpts for like that week and a half for like 25 hours or something. (laughs) And that was like the most practicing I'd ever done. I didn't even know how to practice like period until like got to music school. But that's another story. (laughs) And then I ended up getting in and I seated like ninth out of 13. And that was like my first really validating musical experience that told me that I was like, wow, you're capable of something more than just the bottom line. Mm -hmm. 
it's really interesting like um just sort of uh, it's interesting the way that like these different experiences sort of mirror the way that my life is now and the way that life sort of just flows in general because I remember the next year I was just a objectively better player than I was the year before obviously and I was taking things even more seriously and I at that point knew that I wanted to actually major in music because it was like time that I had considered that kind of stuff Uh, and I didn't get into region orchestra that year Mm. and I was a little bit devastated but that was one of the things that motivated me even more at that point I wanted to prove them all wrong now that's not so much like me I'm not so I don't have as much of a chip on my shoulder as I used to, but um, I really wanted to prove them wrong and prove myself. And so that point was really just where I started really working hard. And that was sort of my focus from that point forward. I ended up deciding that I wanted to audition for music school and I couldn't really figure out what I wanted, like just like in the future future, which I would come to realize nobody knows really what they want or will get. (laughs) Um, And so I decided I would just audition for music education and viola performance, just so I could sort of cover all my bases. I knew that I really enjoyed teaching and performing, so I figured it couldn't hurt. I ended up deciding to come to BW, mostly because I really saw a lot of potential for myself to grow, both in their music education program and also just as a performer. Because, I mean, as you said, my teachers in the Cleveland Orchestra... I had a sample lesson. I had a couple sample lessons with her actually. And I was just like, wow, I've always known that I needed to beef up my technique. And that's the thing that stopped me from being great mm-hmm. and great things. She was the person that I knew that could really help me get there. Yeah. Um, like my, my first impression of her, she was hired during my freshman or sophomore year at school. So she hasn't been there for too long. And from my impression of being an orchestra, the viola studio, like structure wise and and development wise was, was kind of lacking. They were definitely one of the the weaker sections in the orchestra. And she came in and that completely turned around. (laughs) She's a great teacher. No no joke. She is crazy good. She's an incredible player, but she's also just a really on-point pedagogue and she really knows how to get to the root of issues and really solve them yeah and at that point that's something I really knew that I needed before I sort of wrap up my sort of diatribe of a story I did want to mention one other thing that really sort of changed my life musically and it sort of altered my path my perspective and just my really everything about the way I process and view music and that's chamber music Mm. In Columbus, there's a chamber music program called Chamber Music Connection, which is founded by Deborah Barrett-Price. And this is a program for mostly high schoolers and below. So like any age up to high school is what like the regular program is for. And they've got some like adult programs as well. But basically it's to share her love and appreciation and all you can sort of get from chamber music with everybody and anybody, no matter the skill level, no matter the, no matter anything, it sort of breaches all barriers. And she really wanted to share that. And that was something that I really loved. And I 
had never done chamber music before and that like now that's like my favorite thing to play ever it's really communicative and just something about that all just really appealed to me and that yeah. sort of made me realize a lot of what drives me in music is that it's so connecting you know mm-hmm. and so that sort of brings me to like where where i am now i've really done a lot of growing in the past couple of years and it's like i have sort of found that music to me is something that is it's meant to connect people it's meant to bring people together it's something whether you're educating the youth of tomorrow or you are playing a concert for everybody or anybody or you're even just practicing by yourself or playing in a chamber group or rehearsing it's like it's all about sort of just that connecting and to me, that's really been what the music has been all about ever since. It's like, how can we reach as many people as we can to make everybody's lives just better and more loving and more supported, you know? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So I have a few, I have a few questions for you that I've, I've thought of as you were talking about your, your life and your experiences. First one is, did you come from a very diverse school district? How diverse was your orchestra that you grew up in? My school district is definitely not the least diverse, but definitely not the most diverse. Mm -hmm. Certainly predominantly white community. Like, and I'm from a suburb where I'm from. It's, there's not a whole lot of urban around. I'm about like 25, 30 minutes out from like Columbus city Mm -hmm. for sure. I'd say 60, 70% at least. The orchestra classes I was in surprisingly enough were the most diverse sort of demographics that I really ever had when I was in school. And I mean, who can say what that was, why that really was? I'd like to think it's because music can sort of bring people together, but who knows? I mean, it's hard to say why anybody was sort of in that situation, but the orchestras themselves were the most diverse, at least like in, in school. My youth orchestra was surprisingly not that diverse. And it honestly wasn't even something I really thought much about Yeah. until I was an adult and I got to college. And I mean, racism is something, obviously, as a... For those of you listening, I'm of mixed race. And so racism is obviously something that I've always encountered just sort of in my daily life. But I had never really thought about it in something like music because music was just something that always brought some so much good in my life. Yeah. But, you know, I got to college and we're fortunate at BW to have an administration and faculty, for the most part, really, really care about, care about the students and care about sort of understanding the different issues that we encounter. And one of those issues for me was just that I realized sitting in orchestra at school that, man, there's like three people in this orchestra of like a hundred people that I feel like I identify with in terms of race, ethnicity. That's a little bit demoralizing, you know? And it's more demoralizing when like my stand partner, my sweet, wonderful, amazing stand partner, Colin Henley, was like one of the only and few other people of color in our orchestra. Yeah. And it was like two of them are in one section. Yeah. This is, there's gotta be something we can do about this, you know? And I think that you were very lucky to have an orchestra program that you felt like you could identify with growing up and that you felt like there were people that were like you because I, I feel like a lot of orchestra programs are very whitewashed. Yeah. The history behind string instruments, it's very 
whitewashed as well, especially when we're talking about Western classical music. So yeah. I feel like that historical context and then the social context of being an orchestra can sometimes have an effect on orchestra programs and how they spin out to be. The school district that I teach at is is a pretty diverse school district. However, the orchestra is the least diverse ensemble. There are more yeah. there are more uh, kids of color in my band and, and in choir than there are in orchestra. And I am not exactly sure how to place the reasoning in today's society. However, I think that historical context and the social constructs of today do have a lot of influence on where kids decide to go when they choose an instrument. Yeah, you know, I have a lot. I've thought about this so much because you can see that there's nobody that looks like you in orchestra. You can talk about it. You can think about it all you want. But, you know, if there's nothing you can think of to make a change, then it doesn't really make a difference. So I've really put a lot of thought into this. And of yeah. course, there's, I have a lot of thinking to do still about this, but there's a few things about that that I really think have sort of, are just sort of these like subconscious influencers that we have that we don't even really know about or care to know about. One of them is just that there's so much gatekeeping in classical music. Mm-hmm. In so many ways, like, for example, there's this idea that we, I personally think we really need to sort of just get rid of, which is that music starts and ends with classical, and that's it. And that's, that somehow it's the most enlightened form of music, and that it's the most important, and that it's the most impactful. Yep. I mean, look at any community, look at any demographic of any, literally any group of people, and look at the music that they listen to, and you'd know that that's not true. Yeah. Because very few people are listening to classical music. And it definitely starts with us as the generation of future leaders in music sort of needing to tear down these walls. Because, I mean, there's no, there's no way to keep music, classical music relevant if nobody knows about it, if everybody's afraid to listen to it the wrong way. There's no way to sort of keep it relevant. And so I think definitely two things that we need to do, two big things that we need to do among others, outreach Mm -hmm. and to cross the boundaries of genre and of of demographic and of uh, socioeconomic status. Because I mean, look, there's no way that everyone that went to music school for classical music that really loves classical, they're not the only people, we're not the only people that have the chance to resonate with classical music. Mm -hmm. For someone to suggest that would be absolutely absurd. But it's so unfamiliar to other people that just know nothing about it. So I mean, if we can't pique people's interest by also playing or making music that's like this, stuff they're familiar with, there's no way that they can possibly know that they could love Shostakovich or Mozart or Beethoven or anything, you know? Yeah, and I feel like a lot of orchestras are are running into this problem where, you know, they're worried about selling tickets and putting butts in the seats because the people that have historically attended these concerts are a lot older than our generation. They're two, three generations ahead of us. If they want to 
keep selling tickets and, and, and keep doing those things, they have to be adaptable. They can't keep, you know, just programming the same music over and over and over again and only pulling from the same genres and the same historical eras. They, they need to start promoting more new music. We need to start promoting more music that doesn't necessarily fit that white Western classical bubble either because there are a lot of composers out there there are whether they're white brown asian whatever that are writing music for orchestras that have other influences they're not exactly classically based right well and even sort of in a larger scope you know it's first of all to sort of just go off of that real quick not only that but also like the orchestras that i've seen decent orchestras that i've seen like the columbus symphony for example that go out and do public outreach either to whatever communities privileged or otherwise that play music that's not just classical they play like pop arrangements or music from movies mm-hmm. stuff that appeals to people that's not just like classical especially music. to kids to get them roped into to the idea of playing an instrument and learning right and that stuff is always widely like wildly successful and i see that and i think to myself it's not even just about the programming of new classical music it's about the programming of just popular music Mm -hmm. and on an even wider scope than that it's just about sort of being comfortable with sort of we have this like element in classical music of just this immense pride and once again in order to remain relevant and remain something that will have an impact on history it's like we need to really swallow our pride and get rid of some of these unnecessary conventions like not clapping between movements (laughs) stuff like that because i mean when you think about it any non-classical concert like a rock concert or a rap concert they're pretty much the same length as a classical concert and they clap in between songs they clap in between songs they cheer when things are great yeah they react to the music in the way that they resonate with it and even if you go to like a jazz concert people do the same thing they clap yeah. they cheer after a great solo you know like you're encouraged to express how you're feeling in in a positive way towards the musicians that are on the stage and that's something in classical music we all have to sit you know up straight we can't even fidget really we have to sit there in complete silence until the entire piece is over and some symphonies are hours long yeah no exactly and i once again that's something i've always thought about i'm super adhd as well so like that's always been something that's been pretty tough for me quite honestly Especially like anybody that actually wants to listen to this music and enjoy it wants to show that they're enjoying it. Yeah. They can do that. Then they're going to tell their friends about it. Then they're going to want more that in and of itself. It's just part of this archaic model of just like, you must remain modest and not show that we are resonating with this. And it's sort of very self-serving in a way for those that are making music, not in like a, overt way like nobody that's playing in the most people in the Cleveland Orchestra that are playing or in any symphony or they're not thinking of themselves yeah this is great this is only for me this is just for us yeah but but as a whole that's sort of systemically what the what the paradigm sort of is is that it's this is serving us like you guys are here to listen to us yeah and I think it's interesting too because if you look at the history of these classical symphony orchestras there was a time when people would be playing card games and 
smoking and talking with one another while the concert was going on. And it was this, you know, this thing that was going on in the background. And then all of a sudden we shifted the paradigm to where the tradition is today, but it's not like it's always been that way. There've been times where you didn't have to sit there rigidly quiet the entire time. Literally like in these major works of these classical composers, Mozart, Beethoven, all of them, everybody was raucous during these performances. Yeah. There was no rule that said you couldn't clap between movements, that you couldn't make noise during the performance. And guess what? Those pieces and those composers stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. People resonated with the music and people could actually show their excitement for it. So they were excited to share it and excited to keep it around. But if we don't get rid of these sort of conventions and these walls that we've sort of built around music, then of course there's no way to make music more relevant and to sort of tie it into the whole concept of equity. Yeah, all of that is there. And then there's the added layer of socioeconomic status and so many minority demographics are the ones that are stuck in these cycles of poverty and of inequity in socioeconomic status. And so if they can't pay to get into these expensive concerts, how the hell are they going to be able to learn to love this music that they know nothing about? I recently watched an interview with Kendrick Lamar, who's one of my favorite artists. And he was talking about how he grew up in Compton, which is like one of the most disadvantaged urban cities in America. He talked about how the first time his producer ever played jazz music for him, he was like, wow, so that's why I like the sounds in the music that I do listen to. And this is what I really love about this. And he had never heard this music before, but it was something that it was like, wow, this is something that I never knew that I loved and I have such a connection with. Yeah. And And it's like the exact same thing. You need to be able to break that barrier down. Yeah, and I I feel like representation is also super important when it comes to these things. And at least with my students, I try to show them people who play their instrument that look like them because I feel like when they consistently see ensembles that are full of white people and mainly white men, they are sometimes get discouraged to pursue music because they're not seeing themselves in what they may want to do. And so- totally. Yeah. And that's why I'm trying, you know, you participated in the instrument demonstration videos that I was doing, but I was not only trying to get a male and female representation for every single instrument, but I was also trying to get as diverse of a pool as people as possible because we do have a different student body. And I was trying to encourage, Hey, you know, more kids should be joining band, more kids should be joining orchestra, more kids should be doing these things. And you can be a person of color and play the viola. And that's not weird. And that's not strange. And there are people like you that exist that do those things. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that I've really realized, especially this last like year, is that it's really the thing that holds us back as a society, as individuals, as uh, musicians is fear. The fear of what's going to happen if we sort of do a 180 and change everything the fear of what's going to happen if we go into these disadvantaged communities, what's going to happen if we go into outreach, what if something happens, blah, 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 blah. What the fear of, the fear of change and the fear of these conventions not being upheld. Yeah. And 
I'm here to say it's about time that we sort of face that fear and just sort of do it. Because if there's anything that I've learned in the last year, it's that usually fear is sort of, if this sort of journey that we're on, both as a society and as individuals in life, is sort of like a dark tunnel that you never know where it's going to go, fear is the only like light that sort of shows you where you should be going. Because I mean, if you live in fear your whole life, then you never grow as a person, you never grow as an individual. But if you sort of accept that fear, face it, and then allow it to become a part of your experience and a part of your being, now it's something that you can improve upon and you can grow from. And that's really the approach that we need to be taking in music. And I think that that is an approach that a lot of people don't really want to because people are comfortable in their sort of twisted set of conditions, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm curious because when I go to a concert, whether it's a symphony orchestra or wind ensemble or, or whatever it may be, I find myself looking to see how many female musicians are in the ensemble. And I literally count them and see how yeah. many are playing what instrument. And I'm just curious to see if, if you do the same same thing. Yeah, I honestly don't go to like that many concerts of like different ensembles, but definitely like when we would go to the Cleveland Orchestra all the time, like last year, this year, I would always count and it'd be like, yeah, there's like five people of color in this orchestra. Yeah. Like, I remember wow. when, when they hired their new principal clarinetist. Yeah. Who's a, who is a black man. He, it caused like so much uproar and it was like so much amazement that this person was hired and it's a great thing that people are starting to break down those barriers and be able to get into an orchestra like the Cleveland Orchestra, which was barred from a lot of people of color, those major symphony orchestras for a very long time. But also it's kind of sad that that's the major thing is because of someone's color of their skin, not their talent. That's the first thing someone thinks about is, oh, this black man won the principal position in the clarinet section won that position, great. But that first thought that comes to people's brain is, oh, he's a person of color, not, wow, he's this amazingly talented clarinetist. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's like hard to sort of navigate because on the one hand, stuff like that, it really is something that is important to be of note. Like it's important for us to say to ourselves, wow, he achieved. Yeah. And he overcame. But you're right, at the same time, it's like, Well, I mean, it's always going to be something that's out of the ordinary if we always make it out of the ordinary when it happens, you know? So that's definitely something. And that's, frankly, I don't have really the answer to that, obviously, because I mean, A, I'm 20 years old, but also just because there's no way to know how to handle these things. Those are just sort of the, the issues that we will eventually encounter. And it's like, I certainly think all the things that we've talked about so far today are going to be what helps to... Uh, navigate the normalcy of just those that are quote unquote not of the norm and how to make them more in the public eye sort of the ordinary but those are sort of the things that will just come across when they happen and definitely I think the systemic sort of overhaul will be the big catalyst in what will allow things to that'll allow the new normal to come about, you know? Yeah, and I, th- I think just you and I, obviously we can't change the world, but I think 
people just need to be more comfortable talking about these issues. People need to be more comfortable talking about race and the inequities that occur. I mean, for me, that's something that I've had to grow to be more comfortable as a white woman, because I feel like a lot of a lot of white people get uncomfortable when the subject of race occurs, because we feel like it's not really our place to talk about it. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not really your place to tell these people how to feel. You're, you shouldn't be telling anybody how to feel if you're not experiencing it yourself. But just having those conversations and, and really listening to people and, and hearing their experiences and, and understanding like this is something that they are going through that you may not necessarily ever experience, but just being a, a listener and an ally is so important. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a really complex issue. I mean, as like the last month has shown us, it's a very complex thing. And it's like partially about having the conversations. It's partially about taking action, but it's also just sort of about, and this is once again, like all, a lot of this stuff that I've been talking about is like stuff that happens on the small scale, but is also like the basis of just the way life is navigated in general. And like, it's about just sort of asking yourself Like without having to talk to anybody and without having to do anything, it's just really asking yourself these, the difficult questions. Yeah. And once again, swallowing your pride and being honest with yourself. And it's it's been a weird experience for me because, and the reason I say this and that it's not just sort of about like taking action or not just about the, not just about the conversations is like, I grew up, like I said, in a predominantly white community and I, my dad is black and Hispanic and my mom is white. And so I grew up, I don't really look black, but like I am half black. And so I grew up sort of like with all these people all the time for my whole life being like, you're not black enough or you're not white enough to be a part of this group or this or that. Eventually it got to the point where I asked myself the question is like, who actually am I? Yeah. And I really had to ask myself what defines me in a way that was not any of that. Yeah, and it, it shouldn't have to be black or white. You should just be able to be you. And that's... Right. Yeah. And in doing that, I was able to come to terms and identify more with the parts of my racial and ethnic identity that I was not as comfortable with before. Yeah. I think that's really what all of this is about and what will make the change happen is asking ourselves these questions and questioning our own thought processes and questioning our belief systems and questioning everything. I think in some ways people misinterpret questioning everything with not believing everything. Mm. But to me, questioning everything is just asking yourself the question. And if something makes sense, then it just makes sense. Then you don't have to, that's it. But there are a lot of things that we think make sense just because we're told they do. And I think that we're definitely, I hope, we're the generation that can sort of at least spark that change, if not make that change, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I think being in in education and in the position that I'm in, I think teachers have a lot of influence over what happens with their program and what kids they recruit and what kids they encourage and those sorts of things. So do you have, do you have any advice for teachers and how they can, you know, continue to recruit and encourage kids in their program and to make their program as diverse as possible. Something that I thought a little bit about is just sort of, as like public school teachers, something that I sort of thought a little bit about is just sort of the idea of maybe trying to form partnerships or residencies or something with 
other districts in less advantaged areas because even if you can't make it work with playing an orchestra together your kids with their kids playing a joint concert or something outreach is so important and like even if it's just one kid if you go to one of these schools as an outreach either with your orchestra or as directors shit man you could change someone's life you could be the one that makes them make the decision to choose for themselves okay yeah maybe i'll play i'll play an instrument and then they that leads them on the kind of uh, winding path that i was on where they sort of never sort of knew where they were going to go until they were there and now they're in a way better place and that kind of stuff is powerful and something else that is a little bit more functional and less nebulous would be to sort of just try and form a group of teachers on various instruments that sort of have this same sort of passion for these things and form a group that will teach private lessons to students in disadvantaged communities for free or for a reduced rate. Yeah. But I think in a lot of disadvantaged communities, it would really mostly be in that sort of free realm. And it's like, well, once again, if you give these lessons, if you give these kids lessons for free, even if they don't have an orchestra program, then they can still learn this beautiful thing that we call music. They can still grow. I mean, that is an escape for so many kids. It's a direction for so many kids. It's something that can bring a lot of beauty into their life and a lot of change to them and around them. And that leads to community building. That is community building. Those are the big things that I can think of. Those are really tangible changes that can be made you know? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's also why community music schools are so important as well. And yeah, I I know a lot of a lot of community music school programs that do charge students nothing, or have some sort of reduced rate, or they have a scholarship program for kids that may not be able to afford to attend. And that's a great way for kids to, to meet other kids that don't go to their school and learn from others and create more diverse ensemble as well. Right. Well, because I mean, you think about it and like you see all these kids that are super bright, but like, let's take Kendrick Lamar again, for example, he's from Compton and he's seriously like super smart. This dude is a genius. He was stuck in, he was stuck in these same conditions as every other kid. And he was able to get out and do something that led that can lead to change for those around him and for himself but it's how many kids get left in the dust that are just as bright but but don't have that don't get lucky or don't have those same conditions and it's like if we can change that for them by introducing them to these things then I mean you can make a world of change yeah I completely agree well I want to thank you for talking with us and having this awesome conversation I think there are many takeaways that people can can gain from what we've been talking about. Yeah, I definitely hope so. I appreciate you having me. This is this is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.